The following is a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church of Comstock Park, Michigan. For more information, go to mbcmi.org. Perhaps you've heard of a Puritan author by the name of Obadiah Sedgwick. He was an English Presbyterian pastor in the early 1600s, and he wrote number of books in his pastoral ministry. Perhaps his most famous one is The Doubting Believer. And uh, he begins this wonderful book with a dedication to the Right Honorable Robert. Kind of like that title. This is what he says. A renewed heart is like a miniature heaven within our world. And faith acts as the sole sun in that heaven. The sinner only becomes precious when he becomes pious, and the worth of that piety increases commensurate with the measure of true faith. Much like the gem's significance enhances with the presence of the diamond, I cannot conceive of a more concise method for consistent and complete blessings in the life of any Christian than this, to attain faith. And to consistently employ it. Obadiah Sedgwick understands something about the Christian life. He understands the priority of faith in the life of a believer. And not just initial faith that brings someone to Christ, but the ongoing life of faith. This is what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5-7 when he says we walk by faith. And not by sight. So in any godly believer, there is an unshakable and unassailable faith. One that is focused on Christ and one that maintains confidence in Christ. It is interesting though, in his book, Sedgwick goes on to describe how Satan wants to attack us at the level of our faith. He says, quote, Satan is well aware of the influential role that faith plays in all of our endeavors, be it for our own spiritual journey towards righteous actions or for God's abundant providence to reach us with his blessings. Therefore, there is no grace that Satan challenges and contends against as vehemently as faith. Should we weaken or destabilize the foundation of faith, its repercussions are felt throughout the entire edifice of the soul. A Christian's faith cannot be undermined without affecting the entirety of the spiritual structure. Either Satan entices us to sin, leading to doubt, or he entices us to doubt, leading to sin. Without a doubt, it is not the least of his strategies and devices in religious matters to keep certain minds wavering, and in matters of a soul's connection to Christ, to keep the heart forever doubting. This is what Satan is trying to do in your life. He is trying to shake the foundation of your faith. He is trying to keep your mind wavering and to keep your soul's connection to Christ forever doubting. 
Mr. Sedgwick has written an entire book on this about the doubting believer. And he acknowledges that even in the strongest believers, there are times when our faith wavers. When it's weak, when we doubt, when we struggle at times to keep our trust in the Lord, this is a very true reality for all of us. And if we're honest, we will admit that there's times in our life when we struggle with doubt. This is true of all believers. Listen to Asaph in Psalm 73. Admit this, verses 1 and 2. He says, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling, and my steps had almost slipped. You ever been there? Where your faith comes close to stumbling? You remember John the Baptist just a few chapters ago in Matthew chapter 11, after announcing his arrival and preparing the way for Jesus to come, the forerunner of the Messiah himself says in Matthew 3, 11 verse 3, are you the expected one or should we look for someone else? Even John the Baptist's faith wavered for a time, which reminds us that even mature believers, even extraordinary believers can struggle with Doubt. Sedgwick goes on to say, where's the believer who does not dwell more on their fears than on their faith and isn't more often lamenting their uncertainties than rejoicing in their certainties? Can I ask you this morning, is this you? Are you one this morning who is lamenting your uncertainties more than you are rejoicing in your certainties. Are you here this morning and are you struggling in your faith? Are you doubting? Is it weak? Is it frail? Is it faltering? Has something happened in your life this week, this month, this year that has shaken your faith to the core to the point that you're wavering? As we continue in our study of Matthew 14 this morning, we see a man who came to that point. It is Peter, the leader of the disciples, and we are all familiar with this account of Jesus walking on the water and Peter's involvement in that. One more quote here from Sedgwick. He says, in Peter, Christ discerns an incomplete faith and then a deficiency in faith. He perceives faith in him, yet it's incomplete. It's characterized as little faith. There's truth within it, but lacking the level of active strength that could or should be present. Moreover, he identifies a deficiency in Peter's faith, not in terms of its existence, but in terms of its expression. This morning, as we come to this miracle of Jesus walking on the water, we see a glimpse into a man whose faith wavered. And we want this to be instructive to ourselves this morning as we all admit that there's seasons of life where that's true of us. And so how do we deal with this? We're going to ask these questions and see some answers in Matthew 14, verses 22 to 36. Let me read all these verses again. Immediately, he, Jesus, made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. 
After he had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I, do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, You have little faith. Why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You certainly are God's son. And when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick, and they implored him that they might just touch the fringe of his cloak, and as many as touched it were cured. We're looking at six evidences that convincingly demonstrate Jesus' deity. Six evidences that prove us to us exactly who Jesus is, and six evidences that establish grounds for fearless faith. So we began last week, you may remember, looking at the first three of those six. Let me very quickly remind you what we saw last week. Number one, first evidence that convincingly demonstrates Jesus' deity is sovereign authority. Number one, sovereign authority, and we see this in verses 22 and 23, as he sends the disciples out into the boat, he disperses the crowds, and we know without a shadow of a doubt who's in control of this situation, it's Christ. The disciples do exactly as Jesus tells them to do. The crowds leave exactly how Jesus tells them to. He is the one who is in sovereign authority in this entire situation. Number two. Divine insight. Verses 24 and 25, we see that Jesus understands their situation. They're in a boat. They're on a tumultuous sea. They're in the middle of a great storm. And Jesus is on a mountain praying, and he knows exactly what's going on in their life. He's not caught off guard. He knows exactly their situation. And so he understands that by his divine omniscience, the circumstances that they are in. In fact, he put them in these circumstances. Jesus was the one who sent them onto the boat. He was the one who sent them onto the sea, and he knew the storm was going to come up, and he did that all because he understood that the disciples needed to learn something about faith. And we said last week that tells us something very important about the Christian life. We learned last week that sometimes God puts us in trials to teach us about the weakness of our faith. Sometimes he actually sends us into specific situations knowing what we're going to encounter so that our faith is tested and strengthened He knows that we don't learn well in comfortable settings. He knows that we don't learn well when life is easy and comfortable and and just kind of goes along without any trouble. He knows that we need to be stretched. He knows that we need to learn to exercise the muscle of faith in the midst of the crucibles of life. So he sends the disciples into that situation. He knows what's happening. He's divinely aware of it. And so he comes to them walking on the water. 
So number one, sovereign authority. Number two, divine insight. Number three, tender comfort. Another evidence of the deity of Christ is tender comfort. Notice verses 26 and 27. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage as I do not be afraid. They're terrified, not only by the sea and the storm, but they're terrified as they see Jesus walking on the water. And in fact, they should have never been terrified. Because Jesus was with them all along. This is what they needed to learn. This is why he put them in that situation. They needed to know that they were safe all along, no matter what circumstances they were in, because Jesus was with them, even though physically absent. What a comfort it must have been to hear those words, take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. Some of you need to hear those words this morning. Take courage. It's Jesus. You don't need to be afraid. And for some of us this morning, there's fear in our hearts as we embrace the troubles of this life. There are difficulties that all of us are facing. And for some of us, if we're honest here this morning, we've allowed fear to overcome us. You've allowed the troubles and the tribulations of life to instill fear within your soul and yet we learn from this there's no reason for any believer to ever be anxious or worried or fearful because we're never beyond the Lord's care so that's what we've seen this brings us to the last three of these divine proofs of Jesus deity that also Drive fear out of our hearts. Number four, let's continue, let's pick up here. Number four is supernatural protection. Another evidence of Christ's deity, another evidence of his divine nature is that he is able to provide supernatural protection to his people. So remember what's going on here. They're on the sea. They're in the boat. Jesus has come to them. He has said, it's me. You can trust me. Don't be afraid. And Peter hears these words. And certainly all of the disciples must have been relieved to hear these words. But then there's Peter. (laughs) He wants a little bit more assurance. He wants to know for certain. He wants some confirmation. He wants to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, is this really you, Jesus? And I love this because this is vintage Peter, isn't it? This is Peter who's, on the one hand, impetuous and impulsive. He's the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, sticking his foot in his mouth repeatedly. He's quick to act. He's outspoken. He's, he's brash. That's kind of the man he is. And yet we love him for this because he's a big hearted man. He does love Christ. He wants to be near Christ. He's, he, he just desperately desires to make much of Christ. He wants to be wherever Christ is. In fact, this is the same Peter who threw himself out of the boat in John 21, right? When he saw it was Jesus. So sometimes we give Peter a hard time about his foibles and his weaknesses, and yet within him there's this combination of 
immaturity and rashness and unthinking and he speaks without choosing his words and yet he's unpretentious on the other side and he's a man who wears his emotions on the sleeve and you know exactly what he's going to be like. He truly loves Christ. And for that, we have to love him. He failed miserably on so many occasions, didn't he? I love studying his life because you see his failure and his failure and his failure. And so many times he just falls flat and you wonder, oh, Peter, how could you do that? And then we look at it and say, but that's me. I do the same thing. It should be an encouragement to you that God uses frail vessels like Peter. Here's a man who made so many mistakes and failed miserably on so many occasions, and yet here's a man who in the hands of Christ was morphed and changed and transformed and, and made into a man who became a mighty pillar in the kingdom of Christ. And I want you to be encouraged that this is what Jesus does. He takes raw materials. He takes diamonds in the rough. And he shapes, and he molds, and he perfects, and he sanctifies, and he grows, and he matures. That's what's happening right here. This is what Jesus is doing in the life of Peter. He's put him in this situation along with the rest of the disciples so that Peter can see something about Christ and so that Peter can see something about himself. This is what God does. Takes us and puts us in situations so that he can transform us into the instruments that he wants to use. Maybe some of you have heard the poem, When God Wants to Make a Man. It goes like this When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods and watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay only which God understands. While his tortured heart is crying and his lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks, when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him, by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. God sometimes puts you in circumstances to try you and to drill you, to change you, to sanctify you, to grow you. So you can see things about yourself that you've never seen before, and so you can see things about your Savior that you've never seen before. That's what Peter is involved in right here. And some of you this morning are in similar situations. God has put you in circumstances for you to see who you are. And I would venture to guess in many of those circumstances, he's put you there so you can see the weakness of your faith. So he can grow you, so he can stretch you, so he can challenge you, so he can sanctify you. That's what Jesus is doing with Peter. You know the situation. 
Verse 28, Peter says to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Peter makes a request of Jesus. By the way, this is the only place this is referenced in the New Testament. Mark and John record Jesus walking on the water, but they don't record Peter's involvement in this situation. This is the only account, Matthew's account, where we see Peter requesting to walk on the water. And so Peter says to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, this is a bold request. Nobody's ever done this. And by the way, what does Peter mean? Rock. What happens to rocks on the water? They sink. Peter says, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I want you to notice, first of all, his faith. We typically focus on his failure, but notice his faith. He's doing it. Is there anybody else volunteering? No one else is stepping up to the plate. No one else is asking. Peter didn't volunteer anybody else either. He's the one asking, Lord, if it's you, would you please command me to come out on the water? He has faith here. He is a man of faith, and he wants to be with Christ. And so here he is in the moment believing that Christ would enable him to walk on the water. This is real faith. This is not fake faith. This is real faith. He really does have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he loves Christ and he wants to be near him because in Peter's mind, it's better to be with Jesus on the water than to be without him in the boat. So he wants to be with Christ. He's stepping out in faith. Lord, if it is you, invite me to come and I'll come. So don't miss this. We so often focus on the next part. We so often forget that this was a man who began in faith. Look at verse 29. Jesus said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Jesus issues a single command. Peter, you you come. He invited Peter to join him on the surface of the water And Peter did it. He stepped out of that boat. And he walked on the water. And there's only two men in history who've ever done this. And they're right here. We have no indication how how far Peter actually walked. But he did walk. He walked on the surface of the water. I mean, let that sink in. Listen to Leon Morris. He says, we usually remember that Peter's faith failed and that Jesus drew attention to this, but we should keep in mind that it took courage for the apostle to venture on the water at all. I mean, it's so easy. We we say that, yeah, Peter walked on water, but put put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. Would you do this? In the midst of the raging sea and the winds, would you put your legs over the edge of the boat? Would you stand up 
Push yourself off and let go. This is a massive step of faith on the part of Peter. He did exactly what Jesus invited him to do. And we have to admire Peter for this act of faith. In this moment, he's able to overcome the fear because what's been the the tenor of the situation all the way up to this point? The disciples are fearful. They're watching a ghost walk on water. They're afraid. They're in terror because of this entire incident. And in this moment, Peter, with the help from the Lord Jesus Christ, conquers this fear, stands up, and walks on the water. And I want you to let this sink in for just a moment of the power of faith in the life of a believer. This is not just some whimsical event that happened because it just happened. This is the mark of faith. This is the result of faith. This is what faith does in the life of a believer when they cling to Christ in faith, taking him at his word, believing him for the promises This is the kind of life you can live. I'm not saying you're going to walk on the water, but these are the effects of the life of faith. Our staff is reading right now a book by Charles Bridges called The Christian Ministry. And just recently, there's a little section in there on this very thing. I want to read a little bit. It says, when faith is really brought into action, the extent and the aggravation of the difficulty, even if it were increased a hundredfold, is a matter of little comparative moment. Difficulties heaped upon difficulties can never rise to the level of the promises of God. There's a link in the chain of moral causes and effects which connects the helplessness of the creature with the omnipotence of God. Did you catch that? Do you see what faith does? Faith is what connects your helplessness to the omnipotence of God. It's not the faith that does that, it's the It's God who does that, but faith is the the, the vehicle, the means by which you connect yourself to the power of God. Notice Bridges goes on to say, though the work immensely exceeds all human resources, the power and promise of God are fully equal and faithfully pledged to the exigency. No difficulty is therefore insurmountable. Our Lord has invested the principle of faith with his own omnipotence. So we cease to fear when we realize the presence and power of God. Do you believe this? No difficulty is insurmountable. When by faith you connect yourself to the power of God that enables you to conquer fears, and when you realize the presence of God and the omniscience of God, and through the principle of faith are connected to his own omnipotence. Do you believe this? Right now, for the situation that you're in, for the situation that you are facing, for whatever trial, whatever hardship, whatever issue in your life is bringing you fear and anxiety and worry, do you believe by faith in the promises of God that enable enable you to face those with faith? If you say, I'm here and I'm struggling with this, then do you preach yourself these things? 
do you preach to yourself these things? Do you, do you preach the faithfulness of Christ? Do you preach to yourself the trustworthiness of God's word? Do you preach to yourself the omnipotence of God? Do you preach to yourself the fact that he is near you and he cares for you and he loves you and his presence with you and his power with you is what enables you to face the storms that you're facing? Peter illustrates for us what faith in the life of the believer looks like. But you know the rest of the story. There's more to it because Peter also teaches us what it looks like when our faith falters. He also shows us what what it looks like when our faith doubts, when we become weak. And although Peter's faith was sufficient to get him out of the boat, it wasn't sufficient to keep him walking on the water. Look at verse 30. But after all of that, after his great show of faith, after his solid trust in the Lord in the midst of a very terrifying situation, despite all of that, but seeing the wind, he became frightened and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. He saw the wind, and he became frightened. Phobeo, where we get our word phobia, he literally became terrified. Terrified as he looked around him, terrified as he looked at his circumstances, terrified as he took his eyes off Jesus and saw the wind and the waves and the storm, which, by the way, you can't actually see the wind. Notice what it says. It says he saw the wind. Well, you can't see the wind, but he saw the effects of the wind. He saw the storm. He saw the raging seas under his feet. He watched what was taking place around him, and he physically took his eyes off Christ. His gaze shifted from the Son of God to his circumstances. It says he began to sink. This is literally what happened, but I think this is a metaphor for for life. As long as you keep your eyes fixed on Christ, you're fine. But when, when you start looking at your circumstances... When you start focusing on the storm, when you start looking at the troubles, when, when your gaze shifts to your difficulties and your hardships, that's when fear sets in. That, that's what happens when, when you take your gaze off Christ and you forget the upholding arm of our ever-present Savior. In that moment, you begin to sink. And Peter's problem is our problem. Peter's problem is your problem. All of us know this in life. We all experience this, that we get into trouble when we take our eyes off Christ. What you're seeing here is the grand secret of living in confident faith is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. To flood your soul with him, to flood your mind with him, to keep your heart fixed on him. Sinclair Ferguson has well said, every day we need our gaze redirected from ourselves to God. So let me ask you this morning, are you sinking in your present circumstances? 
Does it feel like the weight of the world has come upon you? Do you feel like the financial troubles, the physical trials, the relational trials, do you, do you feel like these things are making you sink? Do you feel like they're just overwhelming your soul? Do you feel like in the midst of all of those troubles, you have now taken your gaze off Christ, you're looking at the waves, you're looking at the wind, you're looking at the storms, you're looking at the troubles, your gaze is now focused horizontally instead of vertically. And you're wondering why you're fearful? Do you see the connection? We get fearful, anxious, and worried when we take our eyes off our Savior. When we get the vision of our circumstances right in the front of us and we can't see anything around that. So is this you this morning? Has your visual field been filled with your troubles so that you can't gaze upon your Savior who is your help? Peter illustrates in this verse. Notice what he says. He cries out, Lord, save me. Again, you have to give Peter some credit here. He understands where his help comes from. He doesn't try to swim back to the boat. He doesn't call out for the disciples to throw him an oar. He says, Christ, save me. And again, he turns back in faith to Christ. So notice what's happening. He starts so well. He's walking on the water with his eyes fixed on Christ in faith. He takes his eyes off Christ. He sees all of his troubles, all of his circumstances, all of the hardships, all of the trials, all of the storms that he's facing right now. Then he begins to sink. And the moment he recognizes that his faith has lapsed and he began to doubt, he turns his eyes back to Christ and begs for him to save him. So let me ask you, again, just another application. When you're in the troubles that you're in, where do you go? Where do you go? Let's just admit it. Sometimes as believers, we don't go where we should go. Sometimes as believers, we we run to other things. We, We run to the world. We run to social media. We run to drinking. We run to parties. We run to sex. We run to... Anything this world offers, money. We begin to look for help in the things of this world. And this is so clear, you're not going to find help there. You're going to find help in Christ, who by faith will deliver you from those difficult circumstances. And so let me ask you, when your faith falters, where do you turn? And how fast do you turn there? You see, that's a mark of spiritual maturity, how fast you turn back to Christ. Sometimes believers will will continue on in this life of seeking satisfaction and help and things outside of Christ. And the longer they do that, the worse it's going to get. And yet the life of a true believer who's walking by faith understands that that doesn't lead anywhere safe. And they quickly come back to Christ. You do that? Notice how Jesus responds, verse 31. Immediately. Don't you love that? Would you have let Peter go down a little bit longer, just kind of feel the weight of his <laughs> lack of faith? Maybe let him sink down towards the bottom of the seat. No, what does Jesus do? Immediately. Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. I just, did you still love this? Jesus could have, with a word, 
rescued Peter. He could have just said it. And yet here you see the compassion and the care and the affection of Christ. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him. Don't you love that? There's compassion, there's tenderness, there's care, there's touch. And he said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? This is a rebuke. This is a rebuke. Understand this for what this is. This is a rebuke. This is a confrontation. This is Jesus graciously diagnosing Peter's weak faith, seeing him, helping him see that he has doubted, he has lost a solid faith, a solid footing of his faith. He graciously confronts him on that and basically says, Peter, what happened to you? You started so well. You began so good. You, you started on the water. Your eyes were fixed on me. You were moving on the surface of the water. You were doing so great. And then all of a sudden it faltered and you began to sink and you began to doubt. Peter, what happened? You can sense some of the displeasure in Christ's voice. Oh, Peter. Peter, you knew better. You should have. See what Jesus is doing? He's helping Peter understand the weakness in his life. He's pointing out where he's failing, where his faith is not what it should be. It's a weak spot there. This is where Peter needs to grow. He needs some sanctification. He needs some maturity. And by the way, he's growing because he had faith, and yet it's not complete. But it's in process. He's shaping him. He's growing him. This is what God does with us. He puts us in situations where we see these kinds of things in our lives as well. And we wouldn't see them if it were not for these circumstances. And so God is gracious to allow us to see these things so that we can grow in them. And so he says, Peter, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? By the way, this is not the first time Jesus said this of the disciples. Remember back in Matthew 6. Verse 30, it says, If God so clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? That was the first time he confronted them on their weak faith. He did it a second time in Matthew 8, verse 26, in a very similar circumstances. They're on the surface of the sea and another storm has come up and he says to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And by the way, this is not going to be the last time he confronts them on their lack of faith. Matthew 16, verse 8, Jesus, aware of this, said, You men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Jesus is gracious, patient, teaching, shepherding, sanctifying, growing. But don't miss the fact that Jesus is pleased by faith and he's displeased by doubt. It's exactly what we see. And so Peter's learning. The disciples are learning. They're growing. And so Christ graciously confronts him. You of little faith, why did your doubt? Why, are you, why is your faith so small, Peter? You should have trusted me. You should have believed me. Your faith should have been more robust. You should have understood that I've got your back. I'm with you. I'm going to help you through this. Even in the midst of these serious circumstances, Peter, you should have known. By the way, can you also notice 
the connection here between fear and doubt? Mark this down somewhere. Sinful fear almost always is the result of unbelief and doubt. That's almost always where it leads. That problems always arise when doubt replaces trust. And you can usually trace it in your life. When you begin to fear anxiety, feel anxiety, when you begin to sense fear welling up in your heart, when you begin to notice some of this unsettledness in your life, or you're feeling as if life is... Um, creating a storm for you, and you're troubled by all of these difficulties, I can almost always promise you, you can trace that back to some form of unbelief. In fact, I would encourage you to do that. The next time you feel this fear welling up in your heart, when you feel the the trouble of your soul, you feel the anxiety, you feel the unsettledness in your life, I would challenge you to go back somewhere and find where you departed from the path of faith. Listen again to Charles Bridges in the Christian ministry. He says, all of our failures may be ultimately traced to a defect of faith. Self-dependence is the grand hindrance to our efficiency. The main difficulty, therefore, is not in our work, but in ourselves, in the conflict with our own unbelief. Unbelief looks at the difficulty. Faith regards the promise. Unbelief drags on in sullen despondency. Faith makes the patience with which it is content to wait for success. As every difficulty is the fruit of unbelief, so will they all ultimately be overcome by the perseverance of faith. To gain, therefore, an active and powerful spring of renewed exertion, we must strike our roots deeper into the soil of faith. Did you hear what he said? All of our failures may be ultimately traced to a defect of faith. That's why I just said a moment ago, when you find yourself fearful, troubled, unsettled, facing hardships in life where you feel like God has failed you, when you find yourself asking questions like, God, why are you letting this happen to me? Why have you allowed this? Why didn't you stop this? Why didn't you change this? When you start asking yourself those kinds of questions, that should be a trigger to you to say, where's my unbelief? Now listen, that's human emotion. So... Hear what I'm saying. I understand this. This is human emotion. God has built us as human creatures with emotions. We're going to face troubles and trials in life with fears at times. But for the believer, we have resources in Christ. And we miss those when we fall prey to unbelief. So I ask you this morning, do you see the danger of unbelief? Do you see where it leads? Do you see what it results in? And yet, isn't this so characteristic of us? We know God is faithful. We know he's trustworthy. We know the verses. We can recite the verses. We know what scripture says about the character of God. We understand that. We can tell others about that. We can counsel people about that. And yet, when we ourselves get into circumstances like this, we tend to fade in our faith. 
So that's why I said earlier, we have to preach these truths to ourselves. We have to stop being practical atheists and forgetting what we know to be true of God. And so are you doing that? I think this is a very helpful section of scripture for us to see because it shows us that it is possible for a believer to truly possess faith and at the same time to have doubt displace that faith from time to time. So in one sense, this ought to encourage your heart. This is Peter, the spokesman for the disciples, the leading apostle in the early chapters of the book of Acts. And in him, we see this mixture of solid faith and sinful fear that comes by unbelief. And so I want you to, in one sense, be encouraged that it is possible for believers to at times waver in our faith. But how do we go back? What's the way back? The way back is by faith. Obadiah Sedgwick says, nothing falters where faith flourishes. Is it faith that solidifies us in the storms of life? No, it's Christ. And faith is what connects you to Christ. So it's not that you need to work up more faith. It's that your trust and your confidence in Christ, who is your rock, needs to be solidified. Well, number five. I promise the rest of these won't go as long. Number five, unquestionable power. Sovereign authority, divine insight, tender comfort, supernatural protection. Number five, unquestionable power. What is another divine evidence of the deity of Christ that proves exactly who he says he is that also helps us drive fear out of our hearts? It's his unquestionable power. Look at verse 32. When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. Jesus and Peter step in the boat. Immediately, without a word, calm sea, like glass. Storm yields to Christ's authority. He is Lord of nature. It's interesting that I'm sure the disciples in this moment were thinking about Old Testament texts that talk about God controlling and stilling the seas. Psalm 29, verse 3, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. Psalm 65, verse 7, Who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, and the tumult of the peoples? Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9. O Lord of hosts, who is like you? O mighty Lord, your faithfulness also surrounds you. You rule the swelling of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Who calms the seas in the Old Testament? God does. And so the disciples are witnessing before their very eyes 
the calming of the seas. And notice verse 33. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. They made the connection. God calms seas. This must be God. And for the very first time in Jesus' public ministry, the disciples recognize this and they verbally confess it. You are certainly God's son. This whole encounter made a massive impression on them. And you can't blame them. Put yourself in their shoes. And just imagine, again, what they've just seen, the the, the raging storms that they've been rowing against for hour upon hour upon hour. And then Jesus comes walking on the water. And then they witness him inviting Peter out into the water. And they watch Peter from the boat walking on the water. And they see Christ rescue him and bring him back. And then they come back to the boat. And immediately as their feet hit the boat, everything goes calm. There's only one conclusion. This must be God in human flesh. And notice what they do. Those who were in the boat worshipped him. They move from wonder to worship. And this is the point of the whole account. Worship. It's not just to display Jesus' power and deity and authority over the realm of nature. It is is to demonstrate that he clearly and definitively is the Son of God who deserves worship and praise and adoration and trust. And so their response is the correct response. They worship him. And I want to ask you this morning, is this your response? To Christ. Are you worshiping him with your eyes fixed on him? with your confidence in Him, with your trust in Him, with your certainty lodged deep into His character and His nature with no doubt in what He's doing in your life? Do you have that confidence? Can you say, you are the Son of God and I trust you implicitly? Maybe some of you are here this morning and you're trying to figure out who Jesus is. Maybe you're trying to figure out, is He really the Son of God? Is He really the Savior of the world, is He really the only way to God? And I say absolutely, wholeheartedly, yes. What more proof do you need? What what more would Jesus have to do to prove His deity to you and prove His existence to you and demonstrate that He is worthy of all of your trust, not only in the troubles of your life, but for your very soul to rescue you from sin and bring you to heaven someday so that you can behold the face of God for all eternity. That's what robust faith looks like. Do you have it?
Does that faith transform you? Has it saved you? Not faith in yourself, faith in Christ. Has it saved you and are you living a life of faith? Last one, number six. One more evidence of the deity of Christ which should drive fear out of our hearts is convincing healing. Convincing healing, just a little account here at the very last part of chapter 14, verses 34 to 36. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought to him all who were sick. And they implored him that they might touch, just touch, the fringe of his cloak and as many as touched it were cured. John tells us as soon as the calm, the seas were calm, the boat appeared at the other side of the lake. Another miracle. They get there, they disembark. Jesus is looking for some rest, some time with his disciples, and once again, he is met with the crowds. Once again, his plans were interrupted with more needs, more sick people, more people longing to be healed. And Jesus could have said, no, I'm busy, I need a rest, give me some time, but he doesn't do that. Here's Jesus, the compassionate Savior, who then tenderly and carefully ministers to those who are sick. And it implies here that those who simply touched the fringe of his cloak were healed. This is Christ. God in human flesh. With all authority and all power. Worthy of your trust. Worthy of your confidence. Worthy of your hope. So can I ask you once again, how's your faith this morning? Is it strong? Is it robust? Is it unflinching? Is it steady? Is it resolute? Or are you here this morning and is your faith wavering? Is it shaky? Is it unstable? Has something happened recently in your life to cause your faith to falter? Friend, you need to confess that weak faith and come back to Christ. And flood your mind with the realities of who he is, the fact that he is completely trustworthy and worthy of your full confidence. And you do that. And I promise you, he will never fail you. Amen? Our God and Father, we praise you that you are the Lord of nature. And because you are Lord of nature, you are worthy of our trust and worthy of our confidence and Lord, you are worthy of our complete faith in you. So Lord, if there are any this morning who do not know you in this saving faith, we pray that you would draw them to yourself, that they would recognize their need for a Savior, that they would fully come and embrace you, repenting of their sin and placing their trust in you. And Lord, for those of us who know you, we, we confess times of weakness in our faith when, when it fails and it falters because we take our eyes off of you and we, we look at the storms around us. And so, Lord, we confess this to you and we pray that you will fix our gaze back on you, the author and perfecter of our faith.
praise you that when we do that, Lord, we connect ourselves to your omnipotence and your power. So, Lord, let us run to you. Let us not cause the circumstances of this life to make our faith flag. But may we respond in robust confidence and trust in the King of kings and Lord of lords. In his name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon by Pastor Todd Dykstra, teaching pastor of Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park, Michigan, where we exist to display God's glory, declare God's truth, delight in God's Son, and disciple God's people. No part of this digital file may be reproduced or distributed without prior written consent. For permission, go to mbcmi.org.